Please open your Bibles to John chapter 3. Twenty-two through thirty. John chapter three, twenty-two and through thirty. And so I wrestle with what to preach on this Sunday. I thought about Acts twenty, Paul leaving the elders at Ephesus and telling them he will never see them again. I thought that was too like intense, <laughs> you know, Paul's farewell sermon. It'd be like a funeral service. I don't want that, you know. So I went back and forth, what passage to preach, and uh, this passage was important for, for me. In our studies of the Gospel of John, it greatly impacted my heart, and I find myself going to verse 30 over and over again as I wrestle with issues in life, family, and ministry. Verse 30 is um, an important text for me. So because my heart is there, I want to share this text with you on this uh, Lord's Day. Verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with him, with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Before we jump into this passage, I want you to take a mental note of these verses in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. And in it we find a key reason for my sabbatical. An important reason for my sabbatical. Ephesians 5, 15 reads, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time. Notice the article. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Make the best use of the time. Another version has it, redeem the time. It is a biblical call. It is a clarion call. A powerful call for to believers not to waste their time. Waste their one life. Waste the one allotted time given to each one of us. But to make best use of that time. To redeem that time. There is an inherent temptation in our flesh. And in our culture, our world. To waste this time. 
to waste our lives, to waste our energy, our mind, our time. Paul says here, fight that temptation in your own flesh and in this world and redeem the time. Our motto is the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew and he understood that he had a set amount of time on earth and that he had to complete his mission given to him by the Father within this time frame. The Lord Jesus, having so perfectly ordered his moments and his days, that at the end of his earthly life, he was able to pray to his Father, John seventeen four. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I'm not just coming to the end of my life. I'm coming to the end of my work. And the work you gave me to do in a lot of time, I finished it. I finished the work you gave me to do. And that glorifies you, Father. The Lord disciplined Himself. He redeemed the time. He set about to complete the work God gave to him and due to his concerted effort, he finished it. We find that our Lord was a busy man throughout the scriptures. Just go to the gospel of Mark and note how many times the word immediately is found in that gospel. Our Lord is constantly transitioning from one person to the other, one event to another, one ministry to another. We read of him sometimes ministering all day until evening. And then getting up before dawn to pray. Traveling to the next ministry venue soon afterwards. The Gospels tell us, tells us of occasional nights when he didn't sleep at all. Crowds of people pressed upon him almost daily. He often got so tired he fell asleep in a ship that was being tossed by a storm. Apostle Paul imitated Christ in this discipline of redeeming the time. Paul also did not waste time. He did not waste his life. 2 Corinthians 6, 4-5, he talks about great endurance, hard work. He mentions sleepless nights. He uses this phrase, night and day, several times in his epistles. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 You remember, brothers, our toil and hardship, we work night and day, night and day, in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. He was a tent-making um, apostle, missionary. He worked in the day, he ministered at night, tirelessly, 1 Thessalonians 3.10, night and day, we now pray most earnestly for you. <clears throat> Acts 20.31, he told the elders at Ephesus, remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you, night and day with tears. So our Lord tells us the importance of time. Paul models for us the importance of time. And then Ephesians 5.15 tells us of the importance of time as well. This is what um, Jonathan Edwards said in his sermon based on this text. We should set a high value on time. 
be exceedingly careful that it not be lost. We are exhorted to exercise wisdom in order that we may redeem it. He gives us three reasons why time is precious. First of all, time is very short. Very short. This renders it very precious. The scarcity of any commodity occasions men to set a higher value upon it. Especially if it is necessary and they cannot do without it. So time is to be prized utmost by men because we have but a little of time. James 4.14 What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. As you grow older and older, you realize oh, time is short, life is short. Life is passing us by at 60 miles per hour. Older we get, it passes by us and it increases in speed. We realize more and more the brevity, the shortness, the limitation of time. Time is so short and the work which you have to do is so great that we have none of it to spare. Because our work is so great, there is none to spare. Secondly, time ought to be esteemed by us as very precious because we are uncertain of its continuance. We are uncertain of its continuance. We know that time is short, but we don't know how short. We know not how little of it remains. Whether several years, or one year, few months, few weeks, few hours few minutes, we are uncertain whether this day will be our last day on the earth or not. There is nothing that experience does, does more verify than this. Our life experience confirms that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Thirdly, time is very precious because when it is lost, it cannot be recovered. It's gone forever. Right? You lose money, you can find it again or earn it again. You lose fame, lose power, lose possessions, they can, they can be re-earned. But not with time. Once that is gone, it is gone forever. No matter what you pay, what pains you go through, you cannot recover time. Though we repent it, repent over it, the loss of time with tears, we cannot regain time. For this reason, time is precious. Perhaps in the earthly realm, the most precious commodity. That is why Moses wrote in Psalm 90 verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days. Number our days. Help us to understand how time is limited. Each of us, we have a set amount of time ordained to us by God and we cannot negotiate with death. We cannot haggle with Him. We cannot barter. We cannot come to terms to lengthen this time whatsoever. It is a set amount and once that time is expended, 
our time on earth is gone. So it is important for us to um, step back and not consider how hard are we running, but are we running the right course? It's good for us to step back. That's what I'm doing in my sabbatical. Take a step back. Am I, I'm fighting hard, but am I fighting the right opponent? You know, at the retreat, you know, we're talking, and all of a sudden, it's like somebody climbed up a tree, right? During our picnic. And I look up, and it's our pastor, Marcus, <laughs> high up on a tree. I go, what is he doing? And he, some toy got caught, and all of us are on the ground throwing things to get it down. Pastor Marcus is from the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> they, do, they do things a little different over there. They, they actually climb trees to get things. Marcus, it's not that important. It's kind of, <laughs> just leave it there. But I think a lot of us are climbing trees or climbing ladders. But are we certain it's leaning against the right wall? Or is it the right tree? It would be one of those um, gnashing of teeth, tearing off of clothes, if at the end of our lives we realize, you know what, I ran hard, but I ran the wrong direction. Man, I climbed this ladder, and I was climbing, and it was leading against the wrong wall. I climbed this tree, and it's all in vain, the wrong tree. I want to take time off to step back to make sure I'm leading this church in the right way, right direction, right course. But each of you as well, our time together this morning for you to step back and consider, are you fighting the right fight, running the right race, climbing the right ladder? Here in the Gospel of John 3, 22 through 30, we find four pursuits that will ensure us that we're not wasting our time wasting our lives, that we're redeeming the time, that we're on the right course, right? Right course. Verse 22. This is right after our Lord's dialogue with Nicodemus. Verse 22 tells us that Jesus and his disciples went out to the countryside of Judea while in the Judean countryside, the disciples of our Lord baptized those who came to Him. At the same time, John and his disciples were baptizing those who were coming to them. There is this overlap. It's like a relay race. John was passing the baton to Christ. His ministry is on the decline so that Christ might begin His three-year ministry. And yet there is this overlap so that Christ might run without hindrance. There is this time of overlap where they're both ministering uh, at the same time in a nearby vicinity. In verse 25, John tells us that a dispute arose between the disciples of the Baptist and a Jew about ceremonial washing. It is at this time the disciples of John came to him, verse 26, and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, and that's an emphatic in the Greek, behold, see for yourself, he is baptizing, 
and everyone is going to Him. Right? He is growing in ministry, and our ministry is decreasing. The disciples of John were worried. They did not like to see their master in second place. They did not like his popularity ebbing while our Lord's popularity growing. In verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This faithful, faithful man of God, he was the same at the end of his ministry as he was in the beginning. John knew and understood that everything he is, has, and does comes from God. John's ministry, he understood, is the ministry he received from God. And so, the first pursuit to ensure that we're running, we're not running in vain, we're not wasting time, is to give God all the glory for life and ministry. Understanding that everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we are doing, the source is from God and not from us. Therefore, whatever titles and roles we hold in life, Christian, Father, mother, husband, wife, brother, sister, worker, or student. Our agenda is to give God the glory. It's to give honor and praise to God, not ourselves. Not to boast in our flesh. Not, not to boast in our achievements. Not to boast in any accomplishments that we have had. But to give glory to God alone. That's what John was doing. A humble perspective. A contrite perspective. A meek perspective. Giving genuine honor to God. For him, Christ increasing in ministry was was joy. Because all that he had came from the Father. Came from God. It's not his to fight for. It's not his to be possessive of or ensure success, he rejoiced and gave all glory to God, understood that everything that he had was received by grace alone, not by works. He goes on to say, verse 28, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him, sent before him. In the Synoptic Gospels, many details are given to us about John the Baptist. His birth, his lifestyle, his uh, aesthetic lifestyle, living in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey, dressed in the garb of Elijah. Many details are given to us about his radical message of repentance. But in the Gospel of John, one is emphasized. Truly one aspect of John's life and ministry is emphasized. And that he was the witness to Jesus Christ. In this gospel, this one particular function of John is highlighted. 
that his primary role was the one who would testify that Jesus is the Messiah who was to come. John 1.6, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Verse 7, here the next verse highlights his God-given mission. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. Everything John did was secondary to his main function as acting as a witness to Christ. He was uh, the witness. The Greek word martyria, from where we get the word martyr, he was a martyr for Christ, a testifier, a witness for Christ. He understood his... um, God-given purpose for his life and he sought to fulfill it with all his might. He claims honor not for himself. He is not here to make much of himself or make a name for himself. He understood that he is here, he is born, he is alive. The time that he has been given was given to him. The point meant to Christ. So here is the second pursuit to ensure that we don't waste our lives, that we redeem the time, to ensure that we're running the right race. Pursue fulfilling God's call, purpose, plan for your life. Pursue living for God's plan, God's purpose for your life, God's will for you and I. I think so many live to uh, make oneself happy, live to make money, acquire things, to promote self. Many, even professing believers, willfully ignore or forsake God's will for their lives. That's a sure road to wasting time and wasting your life and having a global regret at the end of one's life. As Christians, we understand that God seeks not our happiness, but our holiness. And God made clear in the Scriptures, it is God's will that you be sanctified, that you be holy. God's will is clear to us. We don't have to seek God. What is God's will for me? Is it this major or that major? Is God's will for me... Marry this guy or marry that guy. Marry this girl or that girl. It's God's will for me buy a blue car or a red car. Right? Buy a double-double with cheese or without cheese. I mean, we just are consumed by all these wrong areas for God's will. When God's will for us is so patently clear that if we obey the Scriptures, we're in the will of God. And beyond that, we're free. We choose Christ. We use wisdom. We make decisions. But our focus is not on these peripheral decisions. These really like shallow decisions, petty decisions that will ensure us to go astray. But our major ought to be what is God's revealed will for me. That is the scriptures. And as long as we are faithful to God's revealed will... We will not waste our lives. We will be redeeming the time. I I don't want to go through the whole thing, but 
understanding holiness. God's will for you and I is holiness. That is our greatest need. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without practical sanctification, consecration to the Lord, you are useless to God. All that you do for Christ in the sight of God is in vain. Right? You're running in a treadmill, right? A lot of heat, but nothing is produced. Nothing is being accomplished. You're running still. It is salt without saltiness. It is good for nothing. John the Baptist was useful to God because he set himself apart in holiness to be used by God. God's will for us is holiness. God's will for us is humility. And God's will for us is the one another's. Right? That is how we are to grow as Christians. I think our Western Christianity is all growing through um, you know, sermons online, sermons on YouTube, you know, books on Amazon, and we grow individually through these individual pastors. And so they're getting the appetizer by missing out on the main meal. God's will for us is not Jesus and I, it's Jesus and us. We grow not through one man and one sermon or one book. That is such a shallow or narrow understanding of sanctification. Human beings were created in God's image. We're much too complicated for us just to sit down and read an article and grow in that way. God's will for us to be, is to be in the body of Christ and have relationships with different people different stages of life, different maturity, right? different gifts, different abilities, different strengths, different weaknesses, and for us to relate to one another according to scriptures, and then that's how we grow, and that's how we are instruments in the Redeemer's hand for the growth of others. It is through one another that we grow, not through some single pastor and his sermon or sermons. I had a couple come to me and ask for counsel and I told them I'm willing to counsel you but want you to know that I'm a poor substitute for God's will for you for me to put you in a room and counsel you one on one and give you my best knowledge of the scriptures pales in strength in comparison to the church of Christ I am if you're willing just a bridge I am like NICU Right, neonatal intensive care unit. Right, a child is born premature and needs care. You're in the NICU, but the child shouldn't grow up in the ICU. Right, it's just a bridge for the child to go to the family and be raised by loving parents and have siblings. Likewise, if all you do is depend upon me and my sermons and my teaching, that's not God's will. It's going to stunt your growth, greatly hinder your maturity. What the body does through one another's body's love for you, body bearing your burdens, praying for you, encouraging you, modeling humility, all these things will, that's God's will for you. Not a book, not a sermon, not an article, and not just a single, single pastor.
Uh, we understand that. These are, this is the revealed will of God. Right? And that's how we are to witness as well. Evangelism is not each of us going individually, but as we practice to one another, as we love one another, all men will know we're Christ's disciples by our love for one another. So, God's purpose for you is not some specific will tailored for your life. God's will is revealed in the New Testament. If you abide by it, if you follow it, if you, if you obey the Scriptures, you are pursuing, redeeming the time. And you will glorify the Lord. Third pursuit is found in verse 29. And is the pursuit where the highest joy in life is serving Christ. Highest joy in life is serving Christ. Verse 29, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John used a very vivid picture which every Jew would recognize for it was a part of the heritage of Jewish thought. He called Jesus the bridegroom himself, the best man in the wedding. A great picture is of our Lord marrying the church. Jesus as the groom, the church as the bride. This was a picture I believe that John had in his mind. Our Lord had come from God. He was the Son of God. And the Father had arranged the church to marry His Son. And the Father is orchestrating this great wedding. And John's joy is to stand by Christ and to serve the groom and assist in this union of Christ and the church. And he does it not out of duty. He does this not out of obligation. He says, this is my joy. Because I love the groom. I love the bride. This wedding day is my most day of highest joy for me to be serving Christ. John's task had been to bring God's people and the Lord together to help arrange this marriage between Christ the groom and the church the bride. That task was being completed. He was happy now to fade into obscurity for his work was almost accomplished. He said this was his joy. Joy to see people repent and be united to Christ. The third pursuit not waste time, waste our lives. It's to have our joy, highest joy, to be people get saved, church to grow, for people to repent and be wed to Christ. That is our highest joy. Everything else pales in comparison to that. That's why we are here. That's why we exist. Right? That's why Christ has left us on the earth for the purpose of evangelism the purpose of arranging marriages, right? Arranging people to meet Christ and follow Him, submit to Him, and believe in Him. That is why we're here, and that is to be our highest joy. And through life, I hope by now, we have experienced 
that no joy in life compares to that in serving Christ. There's nothing in this world that is of greater satisfaction, gratification, right? greatest source of praise. Right? A family is great. Children, great. You know, money is great, right? Life in this group is great. Food is great. <laughs> Everything. But nothing compares to exalting Christ and having people trust in Him and having the church grow and attending this marriage, this wedding ceremony of people being wed to Christ. That is why when I you know, heard about the OC team ministering this summer, I know, I didn't see a lot of pictures, but I know, <laughs> I imagine, I, they're doing it out of joy, right? The Mexico team, I mean, you could tell all the collegians, the joy of being in Mexico and triple degree weather, right? Three-digit weather, uh, right? No running water, and yet they're filled with joy. Why? Because they're preaching the gospel. When we uh, select people to go to check, and then we announce the team, people say to them, congratulations, right? You're so blessed to be able to go overseas and proclaim the gospel. Because those of us who've gone, we know it's three weeks of pure bliss. Right? Three weeks of just joy. There's holy jealousy and envy for those who are serving Christ here and abroad because it is indeed one of the highest joys of life. And then the final one, verse 30, the final pursuit. These are the very last words of John the, the Baptist. Very last words in the, in the Gospel of John. He speaks no longer. His time of, um, his work of testifying to Christ is over. It is uh, surely one of the greatest utterances that ever fell from human lips. Verse 30. He summarizes it. He must increase. I must decrease. Jesus must become preeminent. I must fade away. The must of verse 30 is crucial. John here is showing deep humility. He is saying that this is the way it must be because this is the plan and the purpose of the sovereign God, His ministry is growing and must continue to grow. His authority and influence among the people must grow. His doctrine shall continue to spread until it extends throughout all the earth. And I must decrease. I must fade. I must step aside. J.C. Ryle, the greatest saints of God in every age of the church have always been men of John the Baptist's spirit. In gifts, knowledge, and general character, they have often differed widely. But in one respect, they have always been alike. They have all been clothed with humility. They have not sought their own honor. They have thought little of themselves. They have been ever willing to decrease if Christ might only increase to be nothing, if Christ might be all. This is the final pursuit for us, to pursue death so that Christ might live. 
the greatest hindrance to our sanctification, to, to our Christ-likeness is us. Right? We are holding on to our identity, holding on to ourself, holding on to the worship of self, holding on to who we are. The only way Christ might increase in our lives is by us pursuing death, dying to ourselves so that Christ alone might live in us and through us. And I'll close with this. And this sabbatical is important for me, but for our cornerstone as well. There is fear in my heart that maybe, maybe, I might sound prideful, that maybe I am too prominent at Cornerstone Bible Church. That I must decrease in our church, in the esteem of our members, not so that, like, Bob might increase, or Dan, or Marcus. Who wants that, right? I must decrease. And all the leaders might decrease. The shepherds might decrease. So that Christ might increase in our church. I pray and hope that my absence will cause our church not to rally around another person, but for all of us to say, wow, James is not that important. Right? This is Christ's church. We're held together by His cross. We're strengthened by His Word and by His people. This is indeed a church of Jesus Christ, not any man. And so in the sight of our church, in three months we'll gather together and we'll be preeminent in our midst. will be Jesus Christ. May we all decrease as we view each other and may Christ alone in us and in our midst be the only one who reigns supreme in our fellowship, in our relationships, and in our church. Let's pray. Well, Lord, that is our hearts. Our desire. This outlines our desires. And we studied it years ago, and we studied it again today. It's so fresh to our, our sight. How time is short, time is limited. Once it is gone, it can never be reclaimed. And you have a set amount of work given to us, and that is revealed in the Word of God for us to give you the glory, for us to give you praise and honor for all things, for us to fulfill your revealed will given to us in our lives, for us to serve you, with joy, especially the service of the gospel, being there to help wed people to you and for us to pursue death, death to ourselves, to our rights, the ownership of our own lives, that you might reign in us. And death in terms of any man's influence in our church, that you might reign supreme. Lord, we seek individually as a church not to waste our lives, not to run in the wrong course, not to run the wrong course. Lord, we pray these truths will be uh, sown in our hearts and we'll cover over them 
And for the next days, weeks, months, we'll water the seed of God's Word. And we pray that God's Word will bear fruit in our lives and would um, cause us with greater fervency to run in the path of your commands. Lord, I thank you for Cornerstone Bible Church. I thank you for the gift that she is to everyone who gather under her, her, her shelter of the church. We thank you so much for how you have used her to bless and minister to us. Lord, may your church be more and more conformed to the image of your Son that you might be pleased as the gospel shines forth in through us. We thank you and bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.